All right, here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Yeah, match, I'm Ollie. That's called matching your energy. This is Scott. Know. <laughs> you know. This is Ollie. Yeah, you said that already, though. I know I did. Now, now you said it twice. Now, I feel like I should say this is Scott again, just to keep it even. And this is Ollie. Oh, damn it. Now you'll be the most you'll be the most famous one on the podcast, and I'll always be the second fiddle because you said your name I, three times, and I said my I name think twice. That is not possible. You, <laughs> I mean, not only are you the list master, but you're also oh, like, you're the list master. Nice try, oh. nice try. I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me. See, in 60 I'm years. trying to give you the nickname. My not friend. gonna happen, brother. <laughs> All right, so this is science in between. And we're we're talking today about we're something. We're t- surprise yeah, me, tra- Scott. What are we okay. talking about today? Surprise not, me. Oh, come on. It's not a surprise. <laughs> but it given given uh, the concern that listeners have voiced about uh, what's going on with Ali and I uh, in our in our <laughs> in vehement, our relationship <laughs> in, in our vehement arguments over lists and listicles uh and what that may have done to our to our friendship um we're okay today, we're okay, we're okay. <laughs> today couples though, therapy has been helping yeah <laughs> right. Been helping. <laughs> right we found a good person um uh but today we are going to talk about relationships because we're always talking about t- teaching is relational so we thought let's let's really take an episode and unpack what that means and talk about it and really like what does it mean for it to be relational and and how is that different to the more traditional views of teaching i think we talk about it a lot in little right. snippets so i think the goal here is to try and bring all that together and have like an in-depth conversation about what we mean when we say it's relational and what that how that plays out in terms of um both the student experience and how teachers have to think about teaching differently yeah so so i you know in in preparing for the show i did i like what is this what's the scholarship around like this like relational teaching, we talk about it and we yeah. talk about it mostly from a social constructivist perspective, right? From learning theory about mm-hmm. like, you know, fostering learning communities, getting to know your students, getting to like talk with them and engage with them and get into their, you know, brains and understand their, their, where, how they're thinking and, you know, making discourse moves based on that. Um, but there's a body of research around this that, you know, I am like absolutely like, like there's a thing called relational pedagogy. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, I mean, it seems true. pretty like out there, you know, and it's not in the science ed community. It's no. in another community. Um, but so I'm, I'm really interested in the things that, cause I know how I got here, like into mm-hmm. thinking about this and some of it was interacting with you, but it's fr- interacting with other, other folks too. And I'm interested to see how, like, like if there was scholarship you engaged with or readers that you engage with, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, relational pedagogy is not something that I've attended to, right? So, no. um, but but what I will say is, um, you know, when we think, well, there's so many things to say about this, but the first thing that that I just want to mention because you talked about social constructivist and we talk about learning theory on here a lot, and one of the things, um, if we're thinking about sociocultural perspectives on learning, one of the that it, so. The basic idea, right, um, just to break this down quickly, behaviorism, which was a foundational learning theory, was mostly focused on behavior. um, And and by behavior, it tended to mean pretty small units of behavior, right, like little behaviors that people engage in. And then that was sort of 
subsumed or replaced or however you want to talk about it. The new theory that followed that was more cognitive theory, which was about what was going on in the brain because behaviorism didn't really pay attention to that. Um, and then there was a shift from cognitivism. The new, the new theories tended to deal more with culture and interactions between humans as the as the nexus, as the place where learning is happening. So, and that started with Vygotsky, but he was very much a psychologist, and then it's moved away from that. So, I just want to point out social constructivism is often the way that is often associated with Vygotsky and then later theories like, you know, Leven Wenger's communities of practice or other more sociocultural perspectives followed that. So the reason all that matters is because all of that shift in learning was also foundational to the way that I think I think and the, and the field of science education thinks about teaching as a relational activity, because there was, you know, like it's not like cognitive um, perspectives on learning didn't recognize that there was value in putting kids in groups. Uh, it just had a different notion of what was happening in those groups and what the purpose was. So it, I, I say all of that to say one of the things that often gets um, associated with this idea of relational teaching is like putting kids in groups right? because it's the same as sociocultural. And putting kids in groups does not in and of itself make for a, a sociocultural learning environment or a relational learning environment for that matter. It just means that you're putting kids in groups um, and how you structure those groups and how those groups are related to the larger class. Um, that has a lot more to do with how you think about relationships between kids and between you and kids right. than just the fact that you put them in groups. Yeah. And I also think how we position ourselves as teachers in those classrooms are, is, is pretty critical to how that plays 100%. out. Because, you know, if you're, we're, we're still taking that, you know, authority figure, you know, you know, information deliverer and then putting them in groups, then, you know, yeah. you're not, you're not really, you know, buying in. Right. Right. Yeah. That goes back to another thing that we talk about a lot, which is agency. Like who has, right. who has the control, who, who has, so when, when you're talking about relational teaching, one of the things you are talking about is flattening that hierarchy, like trying to, you can never eliminate the power dynamics between right. a teacher and students, but what you can do is reduce that gap and try and, and try and create an environment where the students feel as if they have control over their own learning, at least to some degree. And the greater degree that you can provide them a sense of agency like that, the more relational that environment becomes because they start to see you as a member of the community rather than somebody who's controlling it. So I think um, I think those are really important things about relational ways of thinking about teaching. So when you, so unpack the relational thing a little bit more so that people like, because we, we use that phrase, you yeah. know, so often that I think it's probably pretty important to at least define it not necessarily make you know any sorts of like hey here's a list of what's in there because i yeah, know that you are a list I, no. list master goes on <laughs> no i am saying i don't want you to make a list please because i know because you, that's you, your job and you want your make a propensity list. to make lists <laughs> <laughs> that, that you want to make the list <laughs> oh so i don't want to make list. the list my friend <laughs> but I think we at least at least, at least deserves some you know definition, right? Or yeah. are you opposed to defining things too? No, I'm, <laughs> uh, things are th well. I'm opposed to me defining things, but things are always <laughs> defined in negotiation with with people. So so you and I can negotiate a definition of sure teaching. Um, I mean, I think you know it isn't on some level. It's not complicated. I mean, I think what it means is that. Um, 
that how you understand and connect to your students, how you see them as human beings that you are in relationship with, that you want, not that you want to be friends with them. I want to be right. careful because there's this idea that, oh, I'm going to pal around with my kids. No, I, I mean, it doesn't mean you can't do that sometimes too, but that's not the goal. The goal is to understand and know your kids in the same way that you would want to understand or know other people in your life that you care about, right? I mean, this is one of the ways that you express care is to actually know who people are. What do you do? What? Who are you? What do you care about as a human being? So I think, and and when we say teaching is relational, what we're saying is that piece of it, that establishing relationship with kids is for me, more important than the content that they're learning. Now, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be learning content. I'm not trying to say like this is like a summer camp where we're just going to hang out and be pals. But I am saying that having relationships, being in community with other people is um, is critical for people to feel comfortable and capable and being able to engage with the hard work that you're asking them to do. And it also does open, as we said, the possibility for them to have more agency in their learning environment, to have more control over what they're learning and how they're learning it. Yeah. I like that you're connecting it to care. Um, I mean, some of the, like how I got here besides, you know, some of the learning theory stuff you, you unpacked was, you know, I also spent some time reading like Nell Nodding's and and Ethic mm-hmm. of Care and thinking about like Parker I, Palmer. I would, Parker Palmer's absolutely was yep. one of those like really pivotal, you know, authors. Now mm-hmm. I'll 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 frame it that I mean he comes at it really from I mean I think he's brethren or like he has a really strong religious background mm-hmm. and so that is absolutely his his writing is steeped in that. But I also go, ah, this stuff resonates with me because it's yeah. all about, you know, it's all about care and empathy and, you know, benevolence and humanity and things that I like all resonates with me, you know, yeah. and, you know, one of I've spent, I, I teach a lot online and I've been thinking about, you know, how we care online and how mm. we exhibit, form relationships online. Mm-hmm. And because I think that's critical and a lot of my classes are asynchronous in nature so i have to be intentional with how to do that yeah and and so this is something i i just and i I don't mean to talk like promote my blog or talk Mm -hmm. about my blog but this is something that i've been writing about for years on how to do this how to you know i i like coined this not you know coined this phrase but i've adopted this phrase lead with empathy Mm -hmm. like like view every interaction with students from an empathetic lens because when you read something like i i i think the first time i did this i went uh it was maybe like i don't know maybe seven or eight years ago um i got an email from a student that i read completely wrong like i read completely Mm -hmm. wrong and it was really that story on here and it was really an email about help Mm -hmm. and i didn't read it that way i read it as an email of like somebody who was trying to get out of work yeah and Positioning myself as this person wants to like get out of doing work, my reaction is completely different than this is an email about this student needing care, help and support, benevolence, support, humanity, all that. And so I now, when I get an email from a student, that's my starting point. I go, how's, how's, how's care? a reaction to this or a lens to read this because yeah. if i start the other way i, I it's a misstep yeah no you can I always dot you could always dial it up right you right. could always go hey this 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 student is and so like i'll, I'll give it 
that this is, you know, right around graduation a few weeks ago, I, I wrote this post where I had three students who had some real struggles and they all both all just checked out of class. They all just like completely ghosted like the class. They didn't stop logging in. They stopped interacting, stopped responding to emails. They just were gone. And, and I think the easy thing would have been for me just to go, okay, it's the end of the semester. I'm going to fail them or I'm not going to reach out. They they've had their chance, right? Mm -hmm. This is, this is, you know, these are all graduate students too. And it's like, these are, these are graduate students. They, they know the, you know, they know the recourse. Yeah. They're yeah. all in educators too. They, they, they know the expectations. Yeah. They're a graduate program. They're a, you know, rigorous graduate program, yeah. you know, see, they have tools. They have a skill set. Yeah. But what, I, but how I react as a teacher is I think the most critical part, because I, I think that viewing that from an, uh, a position of care and saying, okay, I've worked with each of these students in previous classes, and this isn't the type of work that they, they typically exhibit. Mm -hmm. Something else is going on, mm -hmm. yeah. And and being patient and saying, you know what, I'm going to just wait this out a bit and see if like how like eventually they all reconnected. And in one, I I sent emails like, I'm going to give you an incomplete, even though you haven't asked for one. <laughs> You know, and never responded to the email at all, like never. And I'm just like, and then that what what ended up happening was, you know, when when the student eventually reconnected, she hadn't paid her fall bill, and mm. the provost is like, hey, this person's asking for you know special economic dispensation, you know, like deferring yeah. her bill for another semester. Can you guarantee that this person's going to like finish? And I'm like. Uh, I don't know, you know, yeah. absolutely put my neck out there and said, yes, I guarantee she, she's going to finish this semester because she was at the end of, she was in the capstone course of her semester. Yeah. I mean, of yeah. the program, yeah. you know, <clears throat> but, but again, I think it comes back to, you know, how we react to those situations and the lens in which we view those things. And yeah. I think that while I'm talking about it from, you know, really mental health and big life types of things, I think that's a macro perspective, right? That's mm -hmm. like really big stuff. But I think that same level of care and intentionality needs to happen at the small scale too. When we're talking about small scale interactions in our classrooms. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think, I mean, one of the things that comes to mind when we think about online learning environments is the challenge of them. There's their low bandwidth environments, right? right. So, so you don't, you, so you have to compensate for that. Like if you just assume that interacting with students in an online, well, in this case, I think we're talking about asynchronous online environment. Right. Like you, re you really have to figure out how to compensate for that. And one of the ways that you've described, I think, is to do that, to treat, treat those interactions with much more empathy and openness because – you know, just like people say about email and text, it's not a great way to communicate, no. especially in terms of nuance, right? You tend to get misread all the time because humans rely on all sorts of stuff that are not the actual text to understand what you're talking about. They look at your face. They look at, they listen to your tone of voice. They, all of these things are critical. Um, and many of them are subliminal to the point that we don't even really know they exist. Like that we, for example, don't even see on Zoom because of we're not in the same room with people. Right. We don't get that from them. So even Zoom is a low bandwidth environment. So understanding that if we're going to do relational teaching, we have to understand the constraints of the amount of information that's being communicated between us and the student and how that information is both communicated and taken up 
is incredibly important. Like we have, we really have to think about that. Um, and you know, uh, th- to shift a little bit, another thing that I'm, I've been thinking about recently too, it, and this has to do with some work that I'm doing here uh, with the Eberly College of Science and some other faculty here in the College of Education, to try and think about doing research around, um, a- around undergraduate science education, um, is this idea of thinking <clears throat> when we think about relationships. Traditional educational research tends to look at the attributes of students, so motivation, self-efficacy, um, uh, self-regulation. Like These are sort of educational psychology things that we think of as attributes of students. Um, and we tend to think of them as, as what impacts students' performance. So this student didn't do well, they weren't motivated, right? So I think the problem with that is well, for me, it doesn't make any sense at all because motivation is entirely contextual. Right. But, um, and any of those things are, but, but the simple solution to that is to flip the causality and say, what in the classroom is happening that is creating an environment where this student feels that sense of motivation. Right. And this is why I do like the term belonging excuse me, when we're thinking about, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, I like belonging because belonging puts the onus on the, for me, puts the onus on the teacher to say, what am I doing to create an environment where my students feel like they belong? And that's part of relational teaching too, is that if you want your kids to be motivated, if you want them to be engaged, whatever that means, if you want them to be part of the learning community, well, you have to treat them like human beings and and create an environment where they feel like they belong. And that is done through relational work that is done right. by connecting with your kids. But it also, ha- it flips that causality, I think, in important ways. So if a kid is, and this is exactly, I think, what you were saying, if a kid is failing your class, the question is, how is your class failing that kid? You, yeah. And if you don't do that flip, then you keep blaming the kid for their failure. Well, that kid is that kid, and your job is to try and create a learning environment where they succeed. So if if you're blaming the kid um, for their for their failure, then you're misunderstanding what your job is, I think. Yeah, I, I had a really good mentor early on in my career who said something along the lines of, you know, classroom management, we've talked about this, classroom yeah. management is all around planning, right? Good classroom management is all around planning. If your yeah. students are bored, they're, you know, if they're not engaged, if they're not making personal connections, it's because of your poor planning as a teacher. And so you, you need to really think about like, how are you serving your students? I, 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 can I, can I read some Parker Palmer for you? Cause I, I, sure you I, can. I, I, I really like, yeah. I, I read, you know, the courage to teach a bunch of times and this is, and I, I read, I think I read a quote a few, a few, you know, episodes ago, maybe like 20 or 30 episodes ago. Um, but this one is from um, an essay he wrote called the heart of a teacher. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we could put a link in, in this uh, and he's all around good teachings around in, uh, identity and integrity of the teacher. Right. And he unpacks what this is. And this is what I think it connects to your idea of connectedness, because that's why mm-hmm. I thought I thought it would be good to share. Good teachers join self, subject and students in the fabric of life because they teach from an integral and undivided self. They manifest in their own lives and invoke in their students a capacity for connectedness. 
They're able to weave a complex web of connections between themselves, their subjects, and their students so that the students can learn to weave a world for themselves. The connections made by good teachers are held not in the methods, but in their hearts, meeting heart, in its ancient sense, the place where intellect and emotion and spirit will converge in the human self. And I'm like, mm. yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, mm. see, it, it does get a little like, you know, spiritual, but I'm cool with that. Yeah. I'm down with it. It's all good with me. Yeah. You know, it's it's got a lot of words in there, but no, it does have a lot of words, but it all like just is like, you know, it's just like drinking a cup of tea with some honey in it. It's like yeah. warm and it it's, makes it's you feel good. All, all these comfort quotes. It is comforting. Like you whenever could, you know what like, you could do is you can make a list of those. I'm not making a list of them, but what I, what I do, I, what I often do Sorry. is if I'm having a struggle, like a struggling semester where yeah. I find myself like really like on the ropes, I, I go back to this. I go sure. back to it because it helps to recenter me. Yeah. I think it's good to have that kind of stuff. I mean, maybe even um, for future, that would be an interesting thing for us to think about. Like, what are the, what are the, what are the touchstones? What are the things that we return to, to read or to, to, um, you know, reconnect with who we think we are as, as educators? Cause I think we probably both have examples of that, that we could share with people that I think are, are, um, you know, that help us do the kind of thinking that you're talking about that, re you know, reading Parker, Parker Palmer can do that. It can help remind you like, oh yeah, these are things I value and this is why. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, and it, I just, think... it just brings you back to like, like why, why, why we, I do this work, why you do this work, right? It's, it's yeah. not about like our ego. Somebody, like somebody, uh, I just heard this yesterday and I, I hadn't heard this. Like I'd heard the first one, elementary school uh, teachers going because they love kids, you know, mm -hmm. like high school, secondary teachers going because they like, they like the content. Mm -hmm. I'd heard that like a hundred times. Yeah. College professors go into teaching because they love themselves. Ooh. And I was like, Ouch. Ooh. ah, and yeah. I would say that is absolutely not my motivation. I mean, I do. I kind of like myself, yeah. but, you know, but that's <laughs> like, but it's, that's not an ego thing that is, is motivating me. That's not, yeah. it's not the, that's not the, like the part that's motivating me to be a, a, a good teacher. What yeah. motivates me to be a good teacher is the connections that I can form with my students yeah. and relationships. It's not self-aggrandizement. No. It's not making yourself more important. No, as not my motivation at all. Well, like, and I think that's, it's an interesting thing because I do think there is a certain um, ego suppression that is required to mm -hmm. be this kind of a teacher. And, and I think, Partially, that's one of the problems with especially college learning environments is there's, you know, because there isn't an opportunity for you to develop those relationships in lots of classes, right? If you have a, if you have a class of 700 students, I mean, you're, you're already wrong footed. Like right. it's it, no matter how empathic you are, it's very difficult for you to develop relationships with 700 kids in 15 weeks when you see them for, you know, three hours a week. Um, and by see them, I mean, you view them from a lectern as you, as you give a lecture. Um, so, but, but that, so that leads to sort of an, a, an increase in your ego. It makes it harder to do ego suppression. But I think one of the reasons that notion is so important is I think it, 
it maps like many of the things we talk about, it maps across all sorts of stuff that are not just classrooms, right? Like it maps into how you are in a meeting with your peers, right? Yeah. I mean, if you all, and we all know these people, the people who think that they have all the right answers and they just need, if people just stop and listen to them, they will talk through what the right answers are. Um, so this idea of, you know, I mean, to to quote Aaron Burr and Hamilton, you know, talk less, smile more, um, or you know, the, the Ted Lasso thing about be curious, not judgmental. I mean, both of those little aphorisms are good notes about how to develop relational, um, in relations with people, whether that's in classrooms or outside of classrooms, like to trust that other people can come up with the ideas that you think are somehow uniquely yours. If you just are a little patient, um, I think that often is, uh, is a good learning experience to sit and say, okay, I've got an idea in my head. Let me just wait and see if anybody else suggests that same thing. So it's not necessary for me to right. put it in. And then it turns out nine times out of 10, my experience is nine times out of 10, somebody in the room has the same idea and puts it on the floor and, and it wasn't necessary for you to speak. So this idea of like, well, what what is my role? How much do I need to contribute and how can I make that maximize that contribution while leaving the maximum amount of space for others to contribute. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, a bit of selflessness that comes with this, the, that identity, you know, coming back to, you know, the integrity yeah. identity. It's, it's the idea that, you know, okay, I, I am a knowledgeable expert in this, mm. right. And being recognizing that, but also being selfless enough to say, that doesn't have to show up in every interaction, right? There are ways, or the way it shows up is is not always me, you know, barging into the room and expertise, you know, yeah. because there's other ways that you can demonstrate your expertise and your knowledge without mm -hmm. like necessarily shouting it from the rooftop. And that's that authority and that's that agency and that's the hierarchy all at play, right? And yep. I think that um, that's where you know, I think our positionality and our identity and selflessness comes in, right? Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, lots I of words. That wasn't a list. It was just, you yeah, know. It's just a lot of words. A lot of words. Just, yeah, you know, kind of like just riffing it as I was thinking about all the things that are, you know, encompassed in that perspective, right? Yeah. And I think I think those are um, important ways to think about this, right? I mean, because all the ways that you just described that stuff is relational. It's about how do you position yourself compared to other people and and how do you do that work like how do you how are you with other people i mean as as stupid as that sounds like that's yeah. what we're really talking about is how do you how are you like are you open to the idea that other people in the room even though you have expertise that other people in the room might have things that are relevant and important for for us whatever us is the meeting the class the community for us to hear because just because you have expertise doesn't mean you're the only person in the room that has good ideas right right so so that idea of like well this is a place where and this goes back to my notion of how i think about learning right it's a negotiation of meaning in a context with a group of people trying to understand something together right and that's what good learning environments are and so for that to work the person with expertise and power has to be able to cede some of that power and expertise 
or contribution to other people in the room. And for me, that's the deficit of asset versus deficit teaching, right? If I assume all my kids don't have anything, then I feel like I've got to talk a lot to fill them up because they don't have anything. But if I think that they have stuff and I have stuff, well, now we can all put things in together and say, okay, we all have different ideas. Let's talk about them. My idea isn't the right idea. It's just an idea. Now, my idea... If it's about teacher education or science teaching, has gone through a lot more process. I've thought about it a lot more and other interacted with other people about it and whatever, but that doesn't make it right. It just makes it different. So this idea of like, that's how you create an asset-based environment by recognizing not just that your kids have assets that they can contribute, but that you don't need to put all the assets on the table, that the richer, the richer learning environment comes when everybody is putting their assets together. Yeah. I, I, I think every time that someone brings back up like asset-based teaching versus deficit, it's, Mm. it's like, yeah, we need to say that often, right? Because, you know, it is, I mean, it is really, how do you view your students through what lens do you view your students and, Mm -hmm. and the cultural backgrounds to which, and the, and the abilities that they bring to the classroom, because often it's, we, we focus on the things they, they, they don't have, right. They're, they're not whatever, you know, um, insert deficit, you know, of choice there. Um, but, the reality is that they're bringing stuff that other students may not be bringing. They're bringing something that, you know, is a unique perspective that you can draw in a class and seeing that as an asset um, is awesome. Is an awesome way to look at, it's like, it's like the, you know, if you have a friend who can make really good cookies, right. And you're throwing a party, you know that you're going to have good cookies at the party. Right. You know, and mm-hmm. and maybe they suck at making cake, right? Yeah. What we're not, that person's not going to bring cake, right? Yeah, that person's yeah. going to bring cookies, right? Yeah. So it's like creating the the I don't know the buffet or smorgasbord or whatever you want to call it in the classroom of all of those unique assets that they bring is going to make the best smorgasbord in the class, right? It's going to make, you know, this person's bringing whatever, you know, you get the metaphor, but that's the thing. That's the way we have to view it rather than, oh, wow, this person really sucks at making cake. And this is, we asked them to bring cake. Why are you asking them to bring cake? (laughs) Right. Well, and this, I mean, for me, this comes all the way back around to essentially to lists again, but to this idea of like, if I predetermine what is going to make a good party and make a list of all the things I want at that party and then tell people to bring them and then evaluate the party based on the quality of the things I ask people to bring. Well, that's a power move on my part that actually ends up not taking advantage of the community that we have, right? So if I say, look, I'm having a party. I want to have cake. I want to have beer. I want to have lasagna and I want to have enchiladas and Ice ice cream. cream. Well, but you want ice cream. I don't want ice cream. Oh, that's your damn. that's your thing. That's your asset. I don't care about your asset. Uh, I was just offering. My I party. Was, all right. I, this is not about offering. Be oh. quiet. This is me making my <laughs> list. This is how it works. But this is the point, right? Is not it, we do the same thing all the time. Because when we say kids don't have motivation, we're defining motivation in a particular way, right? If when we say kids don't have regulation, self-regulation, or for that matter, that they don't understand science, like all of those things are making a list of the things that we want at our party before we, we have the party 
and and not considering the idea that people may be bringing things that we hadn't have thought of that might be super great that but we've made the list and so the list is ours and that is fundamentally the problem right is it, and that's how you end up with deficit environments and non-relational environments when the person in charge makes the list and says this is what's important and then everybody else just has to to bow to that, right? They so even the, even though they're really good at making cookies, they have to bring a cake because they've been told, well, that's what what you're bringing. Like, here's the list of things you can bring. If you can't make lasagna, if you don't know how to brew beer and you or buy it, um, and you can't make en, uh, lasagna, uh, enchiladas, then you've got to bring cake, even though you're a cookie baker. I don't care. Right? I can't make an enchilada. Well, I sort of can, but like, let's be honest. I, mean, I like, can. White I, white guy, you know. Right. I mean, I follow a recipe, and it's sure, but it's but it's like a thing. I can follow a recipe, you know. But and I think you know what I think we just did. We just beat that that metaphor, yeah, to, to death. To death. <laughs> right? Yeah. People are but, like, oh gosh, well, you you yeah. started the metaphor, but I, I but I, I ended I, it. You just kept right. You're like, I'm still running with this. Well, metaphor. because I think I think it's you know it got us started on this path of understanding like yeah. why I object to lists, right? Because the lists are. Well, I think you've made that clear. As I know, to why, but you've or, given me a good example of why uh, why lists are lists in this sense predetermining what is valuable for a learning environment um, and whose ideas should count before you start anything, right? Before you interact with the people in that environment, you say, these are the important things. Well, now you've taken so much agency, so much relationality out of that environment automatically, because there's no sense that that the students can contribute anything, right? Or the people. So I, I don't want to get back into the defending of lists. Yeah. The only thing I would say is it, that agency can only go so far because if I said, I want to bring my elephant to your party, you would go, hold on, this isn't an elephant party, right? Hold and, on, this isn't an <laughs> elephant party? Is this a problem you've had? Wow, this metaphor no, is really like, going. I'm just saying that. How about like, bouncy it, house? Yeah, like there are limits to, you know, to the agency. There is a limit. And, you know. And, and you want to predetermine that. No, I'm just saying. Okay, then you No, I'm not saying I am. I'm just saying there is. And it, it, it exists. There's an, a limit to that. And we have, there has to be some sort of boundaries. There has to be. Just in, in there. And I'm, I, it may not be a list, but it's a, it's a, it's a. I think the difference get, is we're, we're not getting, yeah, back we're in not getting into that. We're okay, not doing we're this. Not, again. We're not doing it. Right. It's we're not doing we, it. we have been in this death spiral of <laughs> uh, of lists and you know defining constructs and like yeah. I'm okay with or or listifying constructs, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and then okay. you just I like, don't stop. We're not talking about it anymore. We're not talking we're, about we're it. I, I you want to talk about joys? <laughs> do you want to talk about joys or do you want to talk about uh the party metaphor some more or what do you, no, where, where do you want I to go from that? I, I think, well, I would just, I think we, before we move into joy, I think we, yeah. we, we probably just like want to wrap this up just a bit without like yeah. having lists be the way we end no, on this. Not a list of things that people should take away about. No, I, but I, I think that, um, I think connectedness, belonging, those are really critical things that, and, and, yeah. And I w- want to be clear that we're talking that it's it's getting to know your students on behalf of their learning 
is yes. the critical part is like that it provides real opportunities for, you know, we talk about motivation and engagement as, as being meh kind of things. But the, the reality is that when, you know, I had students who would walk, walk through fire for me mm-hmm. if I asked them to, because I had built up those relationships. They would just like, and, and not that I would ever ask them to do that, but that, that it is, you know, building those relationships is foundational for so many, for all of the students. But we we always go as for for you know these kids, they need that. But the reality yeah. is that all of our students do. Everyone yeah. is is hungering for connection, and that's yeah. the thing I I think coming out of the pandemic was the part that we were just focused on how do we get the content out there, right? Yeah. And we were like we forgot that the most important part about it was about belonging and connection, yeah. And and that's what suffered. Yeah, for sure, and and. Recently, we had a, a visiting scholar here, Joaquin Munoz, who um, is a language and literacy scholar and looks at um, indigenous young adult literature from indigenous authors. But the reason I bring him up is because he did some pedagogy with us. He did a workshop where he used circle, which is an indigenous um, traditional form of of pedagogy. And and the reason I think this matters is he was talking about how he uses this to build community in his classroom and, and relationship. Um, and I'm not going to dig into the details of that pedagogy, but what I am going to mention that he said that I think was really powerful and profound and needs thinking when we talk about relations is he said there one of the things that he, because he was talking about um, restorative justice and restorative practices, which are happening in a lot of schools and use this kind of circles or other versions of this. And he said, one of the things that we have to be careful about is um, there is building relations in an authentic way, which is what I think you just described, right? And then there is building relations for the purposes of leveraging those relationships to get kids to do what you want them to do. And those are very different ways right. of thinking about relations. And I do think that Joaquin's point about that was really powerful for me to, because I think I, it's one of those things like, you know, but when somebody says it out loud, you're like, oh yeah. Because he was saying there, there can be this toxicity if you build relationships, but then after you've built them, you, you, you sort of leverage them to force people to do things that are against their self-interest and maybe position them in deficit ways even. Right. So I think that's an important thing to think about relationships are not in the same way, you know, again, in the same way that they aren't with your everyday people that you have in your life, your family, your friends, like you're not developing those relationships so you can get those people to do stuff for you. You're developing those relationships so that you have relationships with people you care about. And then it may be as a result that those people are willing to do things for you. You know, they let you borrow your, their lawnmower or they look after your dog while you're away or, or they're just nice to you when you see them in the hallway. But, but you're not doing it to get them to do those things, right? Yeah. Like I need to make some friends so somebody will take care of my house while I'm out of town this weekend. Like that's that's nasty. Yeah, it, ooh, it feels icky. Yeah, it does. But we do it implicitly, I think. Right. Sometimes people do that in teaching. You know, like I want to build this environment so that then I can get kids to learn the content the way that I want them to learn it. It's like, right. well... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's all. That's it. That's all right. Yeah. Ah, all right. Yeah. Well, I have uh, a joy yeah. that, um, and this, this actually, if like you've been listening to the show for a while, this probably isn't a huge surprise, but um, this, 
I I've been listening. It's been on like heavy rotation at the house and in my car. Um, Sirius XM released an, uh, we're, we're subscribers. We're long-term subscribers. Like from, I think someone bought me a subscription when I first started at Penn state. So I was driving back and forth to Penn state and going, it's an hour and a half drive and that hour and a half drive often you lose radio like there's like sure. so my father-in-law bought me a subscription to uh, Sirius XM and so I've had it since then so going on almost like 15 20 years yeah. um so they just they started a station called Soul Town right okay. and I've been yeah. ta- I've talked about like my love of Stevie Wonder and yeah. Simone and all that and Soul Town is like right in that, right? And it's like the cool part about it is like there's all the songs like that you know, but the better part is like finding songs that are like earworms that you don't know, you don't right? Know. Yeah. And sure. it's like, and maybe people know these, but like I didn't know, you like don't the song, know. like yeah. I didn't know them. And so it's like almost like a you know crash course of Soul Town music, and I'm like. Yeah, I'm here for it. So I, one of the songs that uh, so my my joy is Soul Town from from uh, Sirius XM. But I'm also going to give a shout out to this song that's been living rent free in my head for like <laughs> the last bum. two weeks. It is Band of Gold by Frida Payne. I didn't I've never heard of the singer. I've never heard of the song, but it's living in my head and it's awesome. And so nice. check it. Check it out. Soul Band Town. Band of Gold. Band of Gold. It is. It's a banger. Chef kiss right there. Chef, ooh, chef kiss. <laughs> right. That's that's a very Italian way to do it. Yeah, I did it. I did it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. There All right. Go. Very nice. I like it. <laughs> okay. Um, I was going to do an Italian accent there, but it would have come off like Calypso Joe. Yeah. It always was. It yes. always was. But even the Italian? Come I on, know. Really? It, it, yeah. All of it. <laughs> <laughs> according to my kids yeah right I, I imagine my italian accent sounds something like mario and luigi or something terrible like that i would not even attempt it it's gonna no. Be, no no so okay joy for me this week is a book that i'm almost finished with i'm probably going to finish it tonight but um it's called why buddhism is true by robert wright um, and it's, it, I mean, I've had a meditation, like a mindfulness meditation practice for a long time, probably, wow, uh, 12, 13 years. Um, and, uh, it waxes and wanes. I do a better job at it sometimes. Um, but, uh, but I, I've been reading this book, uh, because I've been sort of interested in, um, in Buddhism as a jo- broader practice, um, it's a great book and and it's it's um it's a mix he he tries to mix sort of the psychological foundations of how we are as human beings and uh and then mixes it with with the traditions of buddhism and some of their philosophy and i it's it's a it's a nice one of those east west sort of mixed things um i don't know how buddhists real authentic buddhists would react to the book but um but i really have enjoyed it and liked thinking through some of the ideas that he has. And I think many of them have really clear applications to both science and, um, and science teaching. So, um, this idea of really one of the big things is this idea of essence and how we, the idea that a glass is only a glass because we, we have created this essence of, of what a glass is through, well, practice through social practice, right? Practice, but practice, it's always practice. 
So, um, but anyway, I'm not going to try and encapsulate the book because I'll do a terrible job. But if you're interested in mindfulness meditation, which this is really about, it's not really about Buddhism. It's really about mindfulness meditation, which is just a tiny sliver of Buddhism and how that is potentially useful in helping us think about ourselves as learners and, uh, and our world and how we, how we live in it. Um, so yeah, I like it. So that sounds awesome. Yeah. yeah. Good stuff. Well, that kind of fits in the kind of show today thing. It does. You know? It absolutely yeah. does. That's does. why I thought it'd be good to stick sure. it in there. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, there we are. I think this is episode 142. Yeah. That's 142. what this is. 142. Yeah. yeah. If Which, if we if if we had recorded yesterday, we could say "May the Fourth be with you." Uh see, but then you just told everybody where we are in terms of that's okay. you know, the real time. We're getting we're getting a little ahead because you know we got some travel going on, some other stuff. So yes, Scott we has this. some travel. Yes, Scott has. I'll uh, we'll talk about that in the future. I'm sure because it'll be a joy. Yeah, it will be a joy. I'm sure yeah. certain of it. Certain. All right, catch you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now. <laughs>